Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Good afternoon, podcast listeners. We have a very special guest with us today, all the way from the great white North Minneapolis, Doug Ramsey. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Meb. Uh, Thank you for having me. So this is going to be a lot of fun today. A quick intro for a lot of people that may not be familiar. Um, Doug is the CIO of the Luthold Group. And in in addition to CIO and portfolio management duties, writes one of my all-time favorite quant research pieces that comes out once a month with his team. It's called The Green Book. And if you're a quant nerd like me that likes fundamentals and chart porn and technicals and everything else interlaced even with a few jokes, this is like Christmas coming once a month. So I'm really excited in prep for this interview much to, to the dismay of my office mates, I printed out the last six months of the Green Book, which they clock in about 80 pages each. So we'll recycle these listeners, by the way. But the office table in the conference room looks like kind of a beautiful mine with about 50 charts. So, um, Doug, why don't we get started? Tell us a little bit about your background. Um, you know, I know you kind of uh, went to school in the Midwest, played a little hoops, and, and how you found yourself at Luthold, and then a little bit about what you guys do there. Uh, you bet. Uh, well, I grew up in uh, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and uh, ventured off uh, all of uh, six six miles to uh, to college, to Co College, right there in my hometown, and uh, played Division three basketball. Uh, I mean, for Division three, you know, we are not scholarship, but <laughs> I tell you what, it's still a it's uh, well, it's, it's a big part of my recollection of the college experience, and it was a pretty big uh, share of time uh, for you know six out of the nine months of the school year. So, kept me out of trouble. Uh, I think helped me with time management. I got very interested in economics while I was there, and ended up uh, I, I received a, a graduate fellowship my senior year. And the fellowship had to be used for a doctoral program of some sort. So, of course, the uh, economics professors at, at the school were all uh, twisting my arm and, and uh, those of others to, uh, to go on and pursue our PhDs in economics. So I got involved with one of those programs at Ohio State. And Ohio State, I guess I, I had an interest. Uh, well, I had some family history there. My dad and grandfather had gone to school, but they had a very strong macroeconomics uh, department, and that was clearly my, my interest. But uh, as I went on, it just got incredibly mathematical. I mean, it, uh, you know, maybe if you go on and study history of economic thought or some of the other you know, softer disciplines within economics, you actually learn more about the economics. But there's uh, there's you know, sort of a, a funny slam on the uh, the discipline that uh, economists have developed physics envy, <laughs> and that's that's sort of what I what I learned. I mean, I I got my master's degree, and uh, and actually uh, more or less kind of stumbled into the business. I wasn't looking for a job. I was going to go on in that doctoral program and just you know slog my way through the math. But uh, had an opportunity to go to work for a. Uh, a firm that was led by an economist that had more of a top-down, you know, group rotation with uh, some moderate market timing involved uh, back in my hometown. So I got, I got pretty lucky. Uh, that was back in 1990. Uh, so I was with that firm for five years, and then I moved, uh, moved to the big city in Iowa, moved to uh, Des Moines later that decade where I initially worked on value portfolios and then sort of what was a big break for me in terms of, you know, what I like to do more of a macro and quant focus is I became a, a tactical, tactical asset allocation portfolio manager. And this was uh, Principal Global Investors. 
back in 99, 2000. Uh, I was there through about the middle of the decade. And uh, while I was there, you know, developed a number of disciplines, learned a lot, had a lot of time uh, to learn and sort of, uh, you know, run into dead ends on my own, uh, which, I mean, that's valuable. Uh, you know, in this day and age, you come out of school traditionally with your MBA, and if you, uh, if you haven't produced something, a, a good idea in the first two or three weeks, the PMs are already mad at you. <laughs> so, you know, don't underestimate the, the value of having a little bit of playtime just to let your mind wander and and latch on to different things. So I was very appreciative. That was a great experience. And while I was there, I started to talk to the, the good folks at, uh, at Luthold Group. And I had been uh, a Luthold Research client from, from day one. Uh, you know, my firm back in uh, in my hometown. That was one of the things waiting for me on my desk on my first day in business in 1990. So I'd followed the research for years, and we just started chatting maybe in, I don't know, 2002, 2003. I came up here in uh, 2005, and, you know, I have to say, you, you describe this as the great white north, but I'm looking out over the uh, the landscape today from uh, from my window, and it's all brown. I mean, if this global warming is for real, we are we're in a pretty good spot in, in the yeah, country. Right. I mean, it was it was 60 degrees yesterday. I mean, we're going back down in the deep freeze, 12 to 18 inches of snow tomorrow. So it'll be the great white north again temporarily. But uh, you know, I came up here at a uh, you know a, a good time with uh, Steve Luthold and. Uh, you know, some of the veteran old Green Book contributors still around. Jim Floyd was Steve's sidekick for, boy, had to be 35 years, Andy Engel. So had several good years with sort of the uh, the men who, uh, the folks who helped build the, the shop over the years. And, you know, we're in a transition period, or have been, with some new faces. I became CIO in 2011. Steve Luthold officially retired at the end of 12. Uh, I have a good relationship with Steve. We still talk markets pretty often, but it's, uh, it's a little bit of a younger staff than maybe where we stood, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, we did bring in a uh, former colleague of mine from Principal, Scott Opsel. He was CIO of the entire equities unit at Principal Global, and he uh, joined us last summer, I, you know, Fortunately, he had some sort of a Minneapolis linkage. Otherwise, it's hard to recruit people here yeah, right. <laughs> with the weather you. and the, the lack of uh, professionally played sports. Well, we have we, professional we, sports team. They just don't play at quite the professional level other than our, the hockey team this year. Our biggest recruiting advantage is we just take people for lunch down by the beach on the first day, and that usually <laughs> knocks off about 20% off their salary requests. All right, well, let's, <laughs> let's start to get into some of the research ideas because – I would love to keep you for about three hours, but I know we have limited time. So we stand today in 2017. One of my favorite charts of y'all's is a, it looks like a starburst. I think I've poached it and used it on my blog before, but it shows the length of Dow markets back to essentially 1900 or so. Yeah. And we are now in the second longest bull market. And as of what's today, mid-February, if we get about one more month, we're going to have the longest Dow bull market of all time. Not the largest, but but one of the longest. And so I thought that would be a good segue to start talking about um, first the U.S. market in general, and then we can go off into a bunch of different tangents, but starting with maybe valuation and, and the where kind of you guys see uh, where we are in the world today with, uh, with stocks. Uh, you know, well, that's a good place to start because we'll get the, uh, the worst news out of the way first by discussing valuations. Uh, you know, I'm not one that uh, tries to get creative with the valuation work uh, to make some sort of a, a long-term uh, valuation or buy-and-hold argument for stocks. I just can't get there. Uh, and I can, you know, we could spend three hours on that topic alone, but, uh, you know, we look at, you know, roughly 30, well, more than that, but in our um, formal major trend index, uh, we look at about 30 valuation measures with the idea that in any given cycle, you might have a distortion in a handful of those measures. 
you know, that happened with the, the dividend yield, for example, during the tech bubble. No one, in, in sharp contrast to today, where dividends of any sort are coveted, you know, you couldn't give away a high-yielding stock in the late 1990s. So the dividend yield, uh, which historically had rarely dropped much below the 3% level, got all the way down. It was like 1% or 1.1% when the market peaked in March of 2000. So that was one measure that just got just completely blew up as a valuation measure during the tech bubble. You know, in this cycle, oddly enough, it's some of the earnings-based measures, whether you're talking forward PEs or trailing PEs or even our five-year normalized PE. While those numbers are high, I think they actually understate the true valuation risks in the stock market, and that's because they reflect uh, historically very high profit margins. You know, and, and people like to say today, well, you know, obviously S&P trailing earnings are depressed by, you know, the weak results in the energy sector. Well, the energy sector is really not all that big in terms of its uh, contribution to S&P earnings. And even factoring in that weakness in the energy sector, S&P 500 profit margins are still historically very high. I mean, uh, I think the latest figure, and this is just uh, from from memory, I think the latest trailing four-quarter net profit margin using gap earnings on the S&P 500 is 7.9%. The only times that you've been higher than that historically, other than this uh, business cycle, were just a few quarters surrounding the top back in 06, 07. So even though profits are down somewhat, trailing, I'm talking trailing reported gap earnings, uh, they're down, but they're not necessarily depressed. I mean, margins are still very high. Uh, so I think some of these PE numbers are actually, even though they sound high, they understate the market's true overvaluation. And, and the cool thing that you guys do, there's there's a piece that comes out every month. It's called Estimating the Downside, and it looks at all sorts of different valuation indicators. And, and we talk about this a lot, where we say valuation is a very blunt tool. And in general, the indicators should be lining up on the same side, particularly at extremes. And you know, we talk a lot about CAPE, but I often say I don't care which one you use. But in general, they, they should all be on the same side, and they usually are. And so looking at a lot of y'all's charts, they say, hey, look, you know, you measure it, first of all, back to 1950s with the S&P and then also back to the 20s with the industrials. And the ballpark is something like, look, if we went back down to normal valuations, maybe it's a quarter, 30% loss. Um, if you went and, and it, the cool thing, you guys also split it out in between low inflation periods and high inflation and, and the result of these charts. And hopefully, uh, knock on wood, Luthold will, will, the compliance department will let us post some of these to the, to the blog. We'll see. But it, it shows a difference where the, you know, the decline is even much worse when there's high inflationary periods. But across almost no measure does it show that the market is fairly valued or really cheap. Yeah, that's true. And, and Meb, I don't know, maybe it's a sign of uh, the times that this uh, entire lengthy bull market is uh, finally getting to me. But a couple times now in the last three, four months, I've actually run uh, an exercise just for illustration. <laughs> I want to emphasize that. But uh, speculating, you know, we, we look at reversion in valuations, you know, what if the market were to revert to median valuations, or what if it were to revert to bottom quartile historical valuations. Uh, so I put on my rose-colored glasses and asked, well, what, what if the S&P 500 uh, were to revert up to all-time high valuation seen on March 24th of 2000? Now, you know, you're picking the single most overvalued day in the history of the stock market and saying, what if we go there again? So, I mean, this is highly ir irresponsible, not something that should be done by uh, listeners at home, but it does imply further upside in the S&P 500 to about 3,400, and we're a little under 2,400 today. So rather than saying, hey, we think there could be that much upside left, I think it's a better illustration of just how insanely overvalued the market was back in uh, March of 2000. But, I mean, it would reinforce 
what we've said in the last several months that, hey, if this market is destined to melt up, there's some further room. And, you know, even if we got a third of the way, you know, between 24 and 3,400, that's significant. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's a really important point because a lot of people, they tend to get their opinion and the way that they think about markets, whether they're bullish or bearish or whatever it may be, and they don't look to the other possible scenarios and they, and they don't, you know, the the phrase you hear a lot with the news media today is echo chamber, but the, the bears sitting there echo chamber and just read all the bearish you know research all day and the bulls are the opposite but to be a thoughtful analyst you have to at least understand that there is the possibility that that markets could go up a lot more and there's a good chart that you guys have and yeah and it shows i mean there's there's potential of course that the market could go even higher than the valuations we saw in march of 2000 you know it's remote and in our job as portfolio managers is to try to put the odds in our favor and so in general the odds say that yes, its its valuation is much more of a headwind. But you you touched on a couple more interesting pieces, and um, one comment is how various markets and bull markets have different flavors, and they're never quite the same. So you mentioned the late two thousand, uh, late nineties, early two thousands was a market cap bubble, and then. Um, you know, in this one, you guys have a great chart where it shows the PE ratio of the cheapest. S&P sector. And and then also there, there's a great chart of small cap to large cap ratios. Maybe you could talk a little bit about just how, you know, each bull market has different characteristics and kind of what are the ones we're seeing with this one as as we're reaching year nine. Sure. I, I agree with your character, characterization of that late uh, 90s bull market. It got very lopsided in, in terms of the overvaluation concentrated in maybe just the top 50 stocks. So if you avoided that bubble, you actually came out really well over the ensuing, you know, 10, 15 years. I mean, you know, an astonishing fact that this just happened in the last four or six weeks. I, I didn't even know this index existed until recently, but there's a Russell Top 50 you know, it's pulled from the Russell 3000 and the Russell 1000, but there's a Russell Top 50 index that only in the last month or so finally eclipsed the high it made in, in 2000. Mm. <laughs> I mean, wow. that's almost 17 years of uh, going nowhere thanks to the incredible overvaluation. But, you know, the mania in addition to um, – you know, those mega cap stocks was growth. I mean, you couldn't pay too much for evidence of, of growth back then. Uh, whereas the mania in this particular bull market, I think, has been with, with safety, uh, low volatility, and, uh, and dividends. Not even necessarily, you know, high dividend yields, but just stocks with predictable records of uh, dividend increases, and and that would be the S and P 500 dividend aristocrats. I mean, they've done incredibly well. I mean, really since uh, you know the breakdown of that growth bubble in March of 2000. On a relative basis, they've done well not only uh, during bear markets, but also they've outperformed on the upside during both the 2002 to 2007 and the current bull market up until about the last year. You know, they peaked on a relative basis last July. Uh, but I guess the narrative I'd weave along with it is, you know, in the 1990s, we had strong economic growth and consequently the interest in the stock market was for companies with evidence of solid top line growth. And you, you know, you would pay a, a virtually infinite PE multiple if you thought that growth was sustainable. Uh, and you had all these wacky valuation measures like price to page clicks and things of that nature. This cycle, on the other hand, has been characterized by fear. I mean, it's been a very low confidence and sluggish economic recovery. Therefore, the mantra has been to play it as conservatively as possible, and that's been through these low volatility stocks. You know, most of them are economically defensive business models. You know, like the you know the packaged food stocks or the big drug stocks. I mean, certainly the electric utilities have been like the sweet spot in terms of you know lack of price volatility, lack of business model 
risk, you know, a stable business with a product for which demand is pretty inelastic, and then a premium dividend yield. So these uh, electric utility stocks are trading at uh, 20 to 25 times earnings, and they still look very expensive. But to me, that's been where the enthusiasm has been. So where I see the valuation risks within this market, uh, again, they're fairly concentrated, but the high PEs reside in these bond-like, you know, so-called safe, uh, low-volatility stocks. And we've got a, you know, we've run the chart, and I'm sure you've seen it, Meb, showing our own low volatility universe, the median PE, at about 21 or 22 times still, even though they've fallen out of favor somewhat in the last few months. And then our high beta universe trading at a much lower PE relative to its history. So that's just, I mean, that's a glaring disconnect within the market. I'm actually looking at the, the volatility PE chart for median PE on 12 month for, and it takes it back to the eighties. And these stocks used to trade at PEs of 10, 13, you know, in, in 07, it got up into the high teens and then back down to the low teens in 08, 09. And then now, yeah, like you mentioned up into the uh, mid twenties, which is um, kind of insane. You think about it, and, and you mentioned that the aristocrats really have gotten hammered. And we've been talking about warning off people from dividend stocks for a while because you've seen this rush into yield. You probably see it a little bit locally in the Midwest um, over the past number of years with even plate things like farmland. But the the dividend stocks that that peaked really last summer. Um, a lot of people don't, they assume dividend stocks and high yielders do well in a rising rate environment. And, and historically, that's not been the case. And then add on top of that, that they're still very expensive. I think there's potential for a lot of disappointment. One of your charts we'd been including as well. So you, you look at you know different parts of the, the U.S. equity market. Another area that I think is interesting is the small versus large cap. And you guys have a chart of historical PE ratios. And we were using in the last couple of years to say, hey, look, small caps are pretty expensive on a historical range, at least to, to large caps. But then that really sold off over the past few years. Kind of where, where do we stand now on that spectrum? Is it everything's more expensive? Is one much more expensive than history? What, what What's it look yeah, like? I I, I think you're I think you're right in saying that everything is more expensive. We're back to a, a market that is fairly broadly expensive. Now that work did look better on a relative basis, as you suggested, about a year ago. Uh, you know, I would define like the internal overvaluation peak, or just everything was very expensive in this bull market as being about three years ago. I mean, January of 2014. You can even mark it back to the first month of tapering where you started to flatten out those QE monthly purchases. I mean, that's when you hit the highest broad market valuation per our measures, like the median PE, median normalized PE, all that stuff peaked out about three years ago. And then obviously, I mean, the decline, the correction hit small caps almost doubly as hard as it did the S&P. I think the, the Russell was down 26.2, I believe, peaked a trough in 15 and 16 versus 14.2 for the S&P. So that did create, you know, a temporary opportunity, and the small caps capitalized on it. I mean, they've, you know, not in the last month, month and a half year to date, but they've been much stronger coming off the lows. But I do think they're back to a pretty healthy valuation premium, not as high as what they were three years ago, but I have a hard time making a relative case for small caps uh, here on that basis. So it's just, you know, at times we'll have a very strong call on small versus large. Right now, I'd say that that we don't. And, and, that's, and that's fair, too, to say that, you know, it's like the old Teddy KGB and rounders. He just says, just check, check, check. You don't have to play. So, um, <laughs> you know, what's interesting is that uh, looking at sentiment. So about a year ago in January, we were talking about AAI sentiment at one of the lowest bullish ever because the market had started with one of the worst starts to the year um, in history. And then it's funny what a difference a year makes. I'm looking at y'all's charts from the January and February uh, green books and you have investors intelligence sentiment survey uh, hitting extreme optimism, right X ratio of mutual fund timers, all time high. Name yeah. equity exposure index, fully invested, conference board stock market confidence, 13-year high, and my favorite, 
which I've never seen before, is a consumer confidence survey that goes back 35 years on, do you intend to take a vacation within the next six months? And it's the highest percentage ever recorded, which I find fascinating. Do you notice this with your, kind of your client conversations? Are people starting to get a little uh, little giddy with the, the stock market? Or is there still a lot of uh, kind of reticence there? Yeah, I mean, I... I'd say just overall, for sure, it's, I mean, this is the, it's the most optimistic sentiment I've seen during the entire eight years. I mean, there have been little brief periods. I mean, we got one like in the spring of 11. I think I wrote about it and called it the aha moment. Well, sure enough, you plunged into a 19.4% correction in the middle of that year. But yeah, I can definitely, I can sense it, not just you know, clients, you know, I do some of these retail talks around the country and I can, I can certainly, uh, feel it perking up. Uh, so that's troublesome, but you know, there's usually a phase in a a bull market where, uh, the public, uh, is right for a while. It comes in and it's rewarded for a while. It's not like they're an automatic contrary indicator. Uh, and I would say the other thing, Meb, out of our sentiment work, and we're actually doing some work trying to, uh, you know, partition within all the things that we look at within what we officially call our attitudinal category, is partitioning them between the survey evidence, which, I mean, is really through the roof. I mean, other than that AAII, the American Association of Individual Investors, that one kind of flies around and does its own thing. But consensus, market vein, uh, investors' intelligence, the name survey, the active investment managers, I mean, all of those are way up in, you know, max bearish territory, whereas, you know, other than the right X ratio that you pointed out, some of the other money flow data that we monitor are not as extreme. In other words, opinions are now getting one-sidedly bullish, but uh, it's not yet been fully acted upon based on what we're seeing in, you know, put-to-call ratios and, you know, some of the insider block selling measures that we monitor. So maybe there's a phase ahead where, hey, they've got all this post-election confidence based on uh, some rhetoric that's been pro-business. It's not all been pro-business, obviously, but, I mean, people are, uh, it's been a selective filter where the Trump proposals have just been, uh, you know, viewed favorably. Uh, you know, maybe you, maybe you see that in more of the money flow data later this year, and that will mark some sort of significant top. That's what I'm guessing will, will happen. But really, the, the worst-looking sentiment data points are, are all survey-based. Which, which we tend to weight lower than the actual money flows. So we don't have quite as an extreme a, a sentiment reading as I might have guessed, given how far this market's come in the last you know, 12 months. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Trump because you guys have a really fun uh, table in, in this month's green book where it says you look at the stock market by presidential term, but you look at the initial valuation when the president started and the, the subsequent returns over their um, over their term. And not surprisingly, listeners, if you look at the median valuation, so Democrats started around 15 and a half and Republicans, the starting valuation is around 19. Sure enough, the return uh, for the lower valuation for Democrats was 48 percent total return for Republicans, 25 percent. Um, so obviously valuations matter and the bad news for Trump, regardless of his policies, is that he's starting with high valuations. I want to touch on one more stock topic in the U.S. and then we can start to transition a little more into the momentum and trend and sectors and industries and all that good stuff. This is a um, this is from last June and we talked about this and we've seen it mentioned elsewhere where one of the biggest problems with investors indexing is the default the market is always market cap weighted which means listeners that the largest stock gets the highest weighting and if you if you guys remember a few years ago all this noise about apple becoming the biggest company in the market and you know is apple going to be the first trillion dollar company and all this stuff um luthold has a great piece where they look historically at what happens in the u.s to 
equities after they hit, and it's there's no magical number, but in the U.S. at least this 4% number has kind of been this line in the sand where you hit that 4% number in the U.S. and it's really, really hard um, to perform going forward. You want to talk a little bit about market cap weighting and kind of y'all's thoughts about it at all or, or this study in particular? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, we've got that's just sort of a real thumbnail, you know, one page summary of work that we've done for decades. Just and the general theme. And as a matter of fact, uh, I can recall many of the titles. I think probably the first one ever written was maybe back in the late 70s, early 80s, when IBM was a big chunk of the S&P 500. So the lengthy study we wrote was, is IBM forever? And then, you know, as the tech bubble was uh, being inflated, it was, is Cisco forever? (laughs) Is Microsoft forever? Now it's, is Apple forever? But uh, the exhaustive studies we've done just show very high turnover out of the top 20 market cap stocks, and we've got data going back to, I don't know, 1917 or something like that. So it's just very hard to stay up in those uh, rarefied market cap tiers, and that's the way it should be in a capitalistic system. Uh, So the the 4% threshold, it's just, you know, tongue-in-cheek. I think when Apple first reached that back in maybe 2012, we just said, hey, Apple is now in the 4% club, 4% of the S&P. That's a club uh, to which you should never aspire (laughs) to be a member because uh, no other company has been able to stick. Exxon's been there, GE, Cisco, and Microsoft, and uh, none of them are close to that 4% threshold. So I suspect, you know, as great a company as Apple is, they're being mimicked left and right. Uh, I wouldn't bet on them being... I don't know about absolute. It could well be the first trillion dollar company someday. But, you know, I I bet on the other 96% outperforming uh, Apple, you know, on a on a 10 year bet. And what's and so let's uh, you guys got another good chart. I'm going to say this about 100 times. You guys got another good chart where you have the S&P since the market bottom versus basically the rest of the world. And it is astonishing to me to see that essentially the U.S. is the number one performing stock market in the world. And this includes little tiny countries like Sri Lanka, um, Morocco, Jordan, everything in between. What's your opinion on foreign stocks? Is it a great opportunity from valuation? Is it something that there's there's more to the story? What's uh, what's your thoughts there? I, you know, I do think there. You know, we talked about, and maybe when I was complaining about valuations earlier, I should have been specific in saying that's a, that's a domestic concern because most foreign valuations are not even into our initial overvalued zone. I mean, they're still in this very wide fair value band. Uh, you know, certainly that's the case for the EU in general. So I think it's pretty in- intriguing, but you've got to have a longer term time horizon. The other thing that troubles me, Meb, and this is, uh, I mean, this is sort of a highly notional concept we've been working with over about the last 12 months is, you know, looking at, you know, what's, what's a catalyst for leadership turning points, especially when it comes to U.S. vis-a-vis foreign stocks. And what we noted, if you look at EFA relative to the S&P going back to 1970, there have been seven major inflection points in leadership where either the U.S. started to outperform EFA or vice versa. So seven of those inflection points, uh, four of them occurred while a cyclical bear market was going on in the U.S., and then a fifth of the, of the seven turning points took place just two months after a bear market low. So if you want to be a little looser in the criteria, you could say, hey, five of these seven turning points happened in conjunction with a, a, a bear market in the U.S. I mean, what... What that tended to say to us was, hey, you know, a bear market is like a significant reset point, you know, from an economic perspective that may lead to a divergence in uh, monetary policies in the U.S. relative to the rest of the world. It's also like a psychological 
reset point where, hey, we've been bidding up these U.S. stocks. Uh, they've outperformed the rest of the world, which is, by the way, that's pretty unusual. Uh, you know, we tend to, if you look at the weightings on the S&P 500, you know, the S&P has relatively heavy weightings in things like healthcare, consumer staples relative to the West, rest of the world. So it's more of like a, it's more defensive. So for the U.S. to beat the entire rest of the world during a rip-roaring eight-year bull market is really unusual. I mean, it does say that uh, there are troubles around the rest of the world, but, uh, you know, when you normalize these valuations and if you assume, hey, the U.S. has got well above average profit margins, you know, if they come down a little bit and rest of the world profit margins start to rise towards their long-term medians, then the valuation gap is even wider than what it superficially appears. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer, but I, I would need five years to capitalize on that as the problem. Good. We'll, we'll have you back on in 2022 and see how uh, good. all of our um, prognostications come out. You know, you know it's interesting because we, we, we talk a lot about both valuation and momentum and trend on the, on the podcast and in the writings. And you guys also do a lot of work with trend following and looking at something like the U.S., which is a, in our opinion, a clearly overvalued market, but one that's going up and has the trend uh, in its favor as, as now do foreign markets, but but that hasn't been the case really for the last nine years. Many of these foreign markets have, have like you mentioned, have vastly underperformed. Um, and I was looking at, maybe you could explain, there's there's one really long-term momentum signal you guys have that I think fired off a buy signal last summer, and it's called very long-term momentum. Yeah. Uh, could you talk, talk a little bit about that? And, and I think it may even have some commonalities i could be wrong but with the copic curve the commonality is uh one to one it is the copic curve it is the copic curve way back when when uh in uh, you know it was out there in the public domain i think beginning in uh, 1962 it was the the formula was published in uh Behrens. and the luthal group's adaptation and, and we're at impacts us more than anywhere else is in our industry group work. So we run a VLT momentum topic curve calculation on all of our industry groups. It, it tends to lead you into these industry groups that have been long-term underperformed, um, washed out. So it's a nice counterbalance to our other more traditional relative strength algorithm where the interpretation is stronger is better. Uh, and that certainly works over time, but is more whipsaw-prone, you know, at major market inflection points, particularly major market lows. So it's a nice counterbalance to traditional relative strength. But uh, we also run VLT momentum, and I'll just call it that since uh, since that's the moniker we, uh, we put on it. But certainly feel free to, to Google the copy curve, all kinds of good information. But uh, what, what's unique about the, the – the VLT buy signals is that they're unlike a lot of technical studies that are short-term or intermediate-term in, in nature. When you get a low-risk buy signal on VLT momentum, the implication is for higher prices for you know 12 to 24 months to come. And and by the way, you know some people when we show them the study, they kind of roll their eyes. It's like, well, gee, by the time this thing triggers, the market is often already up you know, 20 to 25%. As a matter of fact, I think the average slippage, so to speak, after a signal or from a market low to the actual buy signal is like 20%. And it was larger uh, last year because the market low was on February 11th. You didn't even get a VLT buy signal until the end of May. So the point is this, this shouldn't be the first thing that directs you back into equities. And we were bearish uh, throughout that correction and started to change stripes, you know, in March and, and April. And then when we got this belated VLT buy signal at the end of May, you know, it just really cemented, uh, validated the other bullish moves that we'd taken. Uh, so, again, you should be acting in advance of VLT, but the value in VLT is it tells you, hey, this, this could be, you know, more than just another rally leg. It could be something that lasts uh, much longer than, than you think. And, again, that's when I look at valuations, when I look at the length of this cycle, that's a difficult one to, to stomach. But uh, certainly that signal when we got it uh, first on the S&P 
at the end of uh, May, and then on the Russell 2000, very belatedly, at the end of July. You know, it did force us to be more open-minded, saying that, yeah, even though the initial valuations were high when we got the signals and uh, the economic recovery is already lengthy by historical standards, uh, we just had to say that, look, the market sees something here that it likes on a longer-term basis. So those signals have been good, a bit less powerful than the average historical signal. Not a surprise given the point in the cycle where we got them, but yeah, it's a unique tool, and it's, it's you know the the value is historically there have been very few failures. When you get one of these long-term low-risk buy signals, it's it's a longer-term all clear for the stock market. So we're we're still operating under that you know sort of 12 to 24 month lookout period. Well, let's say that there's some investors listening, and they say, Meb. Doug, we're going to ignore your valuation. We're we're bullish. We're romping, stomping bulls. But we want to drill down a little bit. We want to we want to know what are the best sectors and industries. And so you guys have done a lot of historical momentum or relative strength studies. Yeah, you call it the the dreams, the nightmares, the bridesmaids. A lot of fun names, but basically looking at momentum applied to sectors as well as industries, as well as even asset allocation. And so. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how that works and also what uh, those might be pointing towards today. Well, we certainly use uh, relative strength in our group selection work. And we've got our own uh, proprietary chart scoring algorithm uh, along with VLT. But, you know, I have to say that just, you know, the simplest momentum measures are pretty darn good whether you're talking industry group rotation, sector rotation, or even, as, as you mentioned, uh, you're looking at um, multi-asset class framework. So a 12-month look back, there's just something almost magical historically about, you know, using 12-month momentum. I think there's something in the investor's psyche. Uh, they don't know exactly how much they're up or down versus a year ago, but they have an innate sense that, hey, you know, I'm I'm doing well versus about a year ago at this time. And it's, it's uncanny. I mean, we can demonstrate this through stock momentum studies. Uh, I just don't have, uh, haven't published all of this yet, but um, we've got industry group data, including dead industry groups going all the way back to the late 1920s, you know, rebalancing uh, portfolio using 12-month price momentum on industry groups. Uh, you can rebalance monthly. Of course, that's costly and not all that tax efficient. You can rebalance quarterly, once every six months. You even got alpha if you only rebalance with 12 months momentum annually. So it's powerful stuff. And then we tested, you know, all the other possibilities from one month uh, to 24-month momentum. <laughs> and the 12-month momentum is hands down the best. Uh, absolute and risk-adjusted basis. So that's a pretty simple way. Uh, you know, of course, you can uh, you can somewhat improve upon that, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of what I think is largely curve-fitting. Uh, but, you know, where we've had some fun with that concept in the uh, in the green book is a couple portfolios that we've been publishing for many years in the back of the – or actually it's in the front of the green book each January. Uh, we call them the bridesmaid portfolios. And this started uh, with our work on the 10 S&P sectors. I just tinkered with some, some of the S&P sector history and found that I, I just basically posed the question, well, what, what if you knew nothing else about those 10 sectors other than last year's total return performance? In other words, in other words you didn't have good valuation data. You didn't have a great sense of where we were in the business cycle which uh, may be true more often than we would like to admit, but just you just knew last year's total return performance. It turns out the optimal strategy is uh, a momentum one, and it's to go with last year's runner-up sector. So the idea is, hey, there's probably something going on fundamentally that's favorable that's driven this sector to the number two spot in the performance rankings for the year, Yet, because it's not at the top, it's not yet over-owned and, you know, over-exploited by the press, that sort of thing. So, bridesmaid sector, we call it, has outperformed the S&P, I think it's about now 400 basis points 
compared to the S&P back to uh, 1990. Last year was not a good year. Healthcare was the uh, bridesmaid holding for the third year in a row. So I should have suspected that, hey, that might be getting exhausted <laughs> since it's, it's the third year in a row that we've held it. This year's holding is uh, also unexciting. It's the telecom sector. So I just I put a little bit of personal money into these bridesmaid portfolios. So, and I've gotten lucky this year because the let me just pull this up. I'm going to pull this up on the screen. Well, telecom, interestingly enough, you guys also have a study that shows you know basic uh, valuation as well, where you look at a simple sector asset allocation based on valuation and show that that works well too. And 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 I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure telecom is ticking both those boxes. Isn't, yeah. isn't it the bridesmaid right. plus? We call it the, it's, it's the twice-blessed sector this year because oh, so the, there's the momentum study. I mean, bridesmaid is pure momentum, sort mm-hmm. of like uh, momentum that maybe is not fully exploited. And then uh, a couple years after launching that strategy, we said, well, what about the opposite strategy where we just go looking for trouble? which in my mind is not looking for something that's down the most in price. It's looking for something that is absolutely cheap. So we ran a strategy in which we picked, and these are more, you know, again, I think they're okay to do with a little uh, percentage of your portfolio, uh, more recreational, but really, you know, these are more illustrative, saying that, look, there's merit to, momentum at the sector level, and in the case of the cheapest sector strategy, you're buying the lowest P.E. sector, where lowest P.E. is defined as the S&P 500 sector with the lowest median trailing P.E. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a better representation. You know, like in the financial sector, if you have a big write-off at Citi during an economic downturn, that could, that, that could wipe out all of the earnings for the financial sector and cause the PE to go to infinity. So we just said, let's, let's have the representative valuation for the, each sector. So the median PE, it turns out that the, the uh, telecom services was also the lowest PE strategy. Well, it's interesting, you know, when we talk about, by the way, valuation, U.S. bulls, uh, bears, excuse me, uh, are going to hate to know that the bridesmaid asset allocation strategy winner for 2017 is, is also U.S. large caps. So yeah. uh, maybe we have one more year in this last gasp in this uh, bull. Now, speaking of factors, you know, you guys have, you track, uh, you know, momentum within the stock market. And the traditional way the academics do it is on a spread basis. So the high momentum minus the low momentum, most investors don't necessarily employ it that way because it's a market neutral portfolio it's hard to short yada yada but but it does show that how it's working relative to the to the worst decile and last year was the second worst spread in 89 years the worst being 2009 is that something you think is just a a, a measure of randomness do you think that there's something has changed in markets or any reason that momentum on a stock level on on this on a market neutral spread basis is really struggled twice the two worst years in the past 10 uh that 89 year statistic i mean just one i mean this is kind of getting into the weeds i i didn't uh that study was done on the 50 industry groups Uh, so on an industry group basis it was the second worst i'd have to look i'd have to look at the equivalent numbers for stocks i mean obviously it was a very bad year I don't know if it was the second worst on a stock basis, but it was on an industry group basis. Uh, but at any rate, I mean, they're all sort of aligned. I mean, if it's a terrible year for momentum investing at the group level, it's not going to be a good year for momentum investing at the stock level. So that was certainly true. But, I mean, one thing I would say, Meb, and this gets a little bit into the, the, the realm of factor timing, which... You know, we certainly have lengthy discussions on here. I can't say that we... What's your takeaway on that? You know, we've we've talked a lot about that on the podcast before. We had Rob Arnott on who talked, who's very favorable and pro factor timing. I know others like Cliff Asnes or not. Where, where, where do you guys fall on the spectrum? And, and explain what it is real quick to listeners. And then where do you guys fall? The idea would be that uh, certain long-term 
known alpha generators among quantitative factors have return patterns that can be timed. In other words, there are more favorable environments for value versus growth and momentum and vice versa, and that you can dial down exposure to a factor like momentum at cycle points where it may be more vulnerable. And, you know, I'm, I'm a believer uh, that you should tinker with some of that. Uh, you know, the world is just getting smarter all the time, and it's, I think it's just a little bit naive to assume that you'll just be able to harvest a, you know, a simple momentum factor at its historical alpha rate indefinitely into the future. Uh, so the markets evolve, but, you know, that along with the fact that as, you know, as market students here, I mean, there are historical junctures at which, uh, like momentum in particular, is far more vulnerable than at other times. And we wrote about this in, initially it was in the fall of 08. And the, the phenomenon we were predicting was called the, the revenge of the nerds. And the notion is that a momentum hands down over long periods, high momentum stocks beat low momentum stocks, uh, high momentum groups beat low momentum groups. And again, I'm talking, you know, about a 12-month momentum, or you can use the academic form of momentum, which is, you know, 10-month momentum as of two months ago. You'll see that a lot in the literature, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it really doesn't matter. They're all very good. But where that strategy is the most vulnerable is coming off of a major bear market low. So you have a phenomenon, again, it's the revenge of the nerds, where the optimal strategy, assuming you could time a bear market low, would be to go into what's down the most for the last 12 months. I mean, the momentum, the low momentum portfolio. Again, that's assuming that you can, can time a market low. But I, you don't have to be perfect. You know, obviously the market was just getting crushed in late 08, and we just observed, look, the more the market's down, the larger this uh, revenge of the nerds, this anti-momentum or momentum reversal effect is going to be. And that's what happened. It turned out to be one of the largest in history, which stands to reason because the market was down 57% from peak to trough. What was unusual about last year is we had a massive revenge of the nerds effect, again, momentum reversal, that occurred after only – a fairly shallow decline in the S&P. Again, it was down 14.2% peak to trough. In no way would we ever define that as a bear market. But the subsequent action in factor land, specifically this violent momentum reversal, where the nerds had their day in the sun, the 12-month losers were the best thing to own, it was on a scale that you would normally see only coming out of the other side of a bear market, which is interesting because we were talking about the VLT momentum earlier. And again, that's a signal that normally only comes after a major bear market. So both in factor land and some of our intermediate and longer term technical work, we got signals following that February low that said, hey, that was a significant market decline, even though it was only 14.2% on the S&P. Uh, a lot of things said it was more significant, that it was a, a much more significant psychological reset for investors. One of the cool things you guys do, too, is that, you know, many, many um, investors are beholden to one indicator. And a lot of people would say, you know, I use trend following or I use valuation or whatever it may be. And you guys have something called the major trend index. And it looks like it has like, I don't even know, over a hundred inputs, but everything from economic inputs to attitudinal to supply and demand, momentum, breadth and valuation. Could you explain just really quickly uh, kind of the, the general concept there? And of course, what's it saying now? Sure. The major trend, it's 120, I'm sorry, 130 inputs. It's gone on a diet since I took it over five years ago. I'm a minimalist, so it only has 130 things now, down from 180. Uh, five categories. I mean, it's really everything that we think brings to bear, that brings to bear on the intermediate term or the cyclical outlook for the stock market. So valuations are a piece of it. 
liquidity factors, interest rates, Fed policy, all of those uh, are rolled up into a category we call economic interest rates inflation. The investor sentiment, our, our name for that is attitudinal. We look at uh, supply demand factors, you know, like IPO flows, uh, institutional buying pressure, that's all under supply demand. And then uh, the technical factors would be momentum, breadth, divergence, and even within that category, there are some things that are anticipatory or, or predictive and others that are just, you know, sort of the blocking and tackling, you know, trend following that, uh, you know, we hope that they're not the things that actually trigger a shift, but sometimes you just need them. I mean, uh, you know, this forthcoming market top, I got to believe after an eight-year bull market, we should have a, you know, a fairly lengthy topping process, I would think, where cracks in market breadth and small caps in sector leadership, maybe like the transports and the financials, uh, maybe we've already got some of that with what's going on with the utilities having underperformed now for several months, but the utilities would be the only crack I can see really in all of the technical work. The breadth is there, other leading groups are behaving well, <laughs> obviously all the trend following work is strong. But that will be the challenge is, you know, I would suspect if uh, this thing even loosely conforms to the historical pattern, we'll get several months of uh, more divergent, fractured action within the market that will help, uh, you know, lead us to a more defensive position. And, of course, you know, that could be accompanied by more inflated sentiment or not. Uh, sentiment, just like almost every other market indicator, Market sentiment is better at market lows than it is at highs. You know, stock market lows tend to be spike events. Uh, market tops are much more dispersed, you know, rounding in nature where sort of one by one the leadership uh, falls by the wayside. That's what I'm expecting. If it doesn't happen, then we're just going to have to rely on some of these more clumsy, uh, I consider them clumsy, uh, trend-following indicators that will – only get us out after, I don't know, a 5 to a 7% decline. I, I can't say for certain, but lucky. that's kind of... <laughs> yeah, it, well, who knows? I mean, look at 1987. I mean, 1987 did ha have a lot of uh, deteriorating evidence in advance. I mean, I think a scarier scenario, I mean, this is one we chat about sometimes on the asset allocation team, but uh, I referenced that 2011 decline earlier. You know, that was a 19.4% decline in the S&P, much deeper in, you know, the Russell and, you know, the value line, things of that nature. For some reason, it's not generally considered a bear market, but that was one that did not have internal forewarning from uh, breadth or leadership. Um, I mean, that that decline started with, you know, over 90% of uh, NYSE stocks above their 30-week moving averages. Really unusual. The market was very internally strong into the end of April, and yet, boom, you had this uh, borderline bear market. So scenarios like that worry me. I mean, that would just be an out-of-the-blue scenario, but they do happen occasionally. Yeah, that would be that would be the painful scenario right now, where almost like you mentioned, at almost every market is in an uptrend, and yeah. you have that sort of shock to the system, and it's, uh, you know, what it with, it's possible. It certainly can happen. And so, so for the novice investors listening, and they're saying, "Meb, Doug, this is great. I love all this information. I'm not going to be able to follow 130 indicators on my own. If I did, I wouldn't even know what to do with it." What's kind of your advice for implementation for? So your average investor that's listening to this podcast and is is interested in putting together a portfolio, but also you know trying to to be a little active and protect themselves, you know before this this next bear creeps up on us whenever whenever that may be. You know, for those not attuned to the market day to day, I you know, I would not be at maximum equity exposure. I mean, the reason that we're fairly close is because we do. Uh, follow more of this uh, this shorter term work. I mean sentiment and, and market action. I'd be uh, I'd be dialed back somewhat uh, from maximum exposure, and then within uh, whatever your predetermined mix is for domestic versus foreign, I'd have more of an emphasis on foreign and in particular emerging markets uh, because. You know, in a, a retail setting, you know, with not a lot of flexibility or desire to do 
large and frequent moves. Uh, I'd rely more on valuation, and valuation tells me that I should be lighter than normal on U.S. equities and and tilting more towards foreign. Or listeners, you can just go buy a bunch of the Luthold funds and be done with it in Cambria. Doug, one or two more questions, and I promise sure. we'll let you go. We're not going to keep you keep you around all day. Uh, there's a chart that I was curious that I, I wasn't quite sure what it was. Um, you have a chart called the Risk Aversion Index, and it goes back to the early 80s. And just from eyeballing it, it looks like we're arguably at one of the lowest levels. What, what is that chart telling us, and does it have any sort of forward-looking implications at all? The forward-looking implications are stronger when it's high. In other words, risk aversion is very high. Getting back to what I mentioned about market lows being sort of spike events, whereas market tops can be rounding and you can remain at you know very low volatility, uh, very low investor uh, risk aversion uh, like we've had recently. But that risk aversion index was uh, developed by our uh, fixed income guru, Chun Wong. Uh, and these risk aversion indices are fairly standard in the quant world. It lines up quite well with our own attitudinal category. And I think the mathematical difference is that what Chun's got with this, uh, he calls it the R, the Risk Aversion Index, RAI. It's, it's range-bound. So it's got some nice statistical properties. But, you know, he's looking at things like credit spreads, uh, the VIX, relative action between industrial metals and precious metals is sort of an inflation versus growth trade-off. Uh, the actual volatility of the market itself. I mean, several factors go into that uh, RAI. It's actually it's uh, decent on a trend-following basis. Uh, we use that as part of a, a bigger macro model and just a three-month moving average. The direction of the three-month moving average on this risk aversion index is it's okay. Again, recognizing that, I mean, market lows can be <laughs> – Violent, and you can have a, you know, a very uh, vicious short-term rally in risk assets. So it won't be perfect, but in longer-term, uh, in a longer-term trend context, it's it's pretty good. But it is highly related to our uh, attitudinal uh, category, where we're using more conventional measures of investor sentiment, like put-to-call ratios, and you know, all those investor sentiment surveys and flows into short funds, things of that nature. Seems like a good time to be buying some cheap hedge insurance at this point. Some some long term uh, puts, perhaps with low vol, high valuations. I don't know. Um, what, what's thinking personally? Do you have a uh, in your career a most memorable, good or bad, investment <laughs> or trade that you can think of? Hmm. We, we used to ask that question yeah, where we said, yeah. do you have the most memorable investment? And then ask, do you have, what was your worst trade? But for some, <laughs> for a lot of people, that's the same one. So we're just asking, is most memorable across the board these days? Yeah, uh, I was, well, I worked on uh, mid and uh, large cap value portfolios in the late 1990s, which was uh, brutal. You know, all these great companies. Uh, that just uh, the market wanted no part of uh, because their businesses were mundane. That was difficult, but I was convinced the tech bubble was going to uh, burst. And rather than, you know, like a short tech fund or a short Internet fund, uh, I decided to write some naked calls on eBay. So this is back in 2000. (laughs) Yeah. So, of course, that was one of the ones that survived the entire bear better than almost everything else. I didn't lose, well, at the time, it was a pretty significant uh, chunk. But, you know, having the general uh, theme right and just blowing it on the individual vehicle, that's one that stands out because everything else was going down in a hurry. And here my my eBay calls that I was short were... uh, forcing margin calls so that wasn't fun that's one that sticks out the late 90s were great i mean i love bubbles i mean there's nothing more fun than bubbles i think people probably 
gravitating towards Bitcoin now. I'm not sure, but uh, but, but, but bubbles create a lot of opportunity on both sides. Doug, it's been awesome. Where can fi- people find more information on you and your writing if uh, if they wanted to, to follow you guys and learn more? Sure, L- lutholdgroup.com, uh, research website, and then lutholdfunds.com. We've got a family of five mutual funds. Uh, the bulk of our assets are in tactical strategies, utilizing, you know, uh, the major trend index driving the, the net equity exposure, and then our long equities are driven by the uh, the industry quantitative industry group work. I've talked a lot about momentum. I mean, that's one piece of it. It's the piece that's easiest to quantify. But we do have a, a value a value stock selection model that we pair with the industry group model that's that's uh, worked out well. And the yeah, it's been three four years now. We've been using this value overlay. So basically, cheap stocks and stronger groups. Uh, that's been a good marriage. Helps insulate us when we have, uh, you know, a momentum reversal like last year. But those would be the two places to go. I love it. Well, look, Doug, thanks so much for chatting with us today. It was a lot of fun. I mean, we have another stack of probably 50 charts that we'll, we'll have to reserve for next time, and we'll have you back on in, in, uh, in the future. But listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback and questions uh, for the mailbag at feedback at com. As a reminder, you can find the show notes, and hopefully, fingers crossed, Lots of charts from Luthold uh, at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, hey, Jeff requests, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.